But I wouldn't have come along to Christian things probably till 19s after Billy Graham was around, <laughs> 79, 80. Yeah, okay. And you were studying social work at uni? Yep, yeah, that's right, right. social work. That. That's good, good memory, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and yeah. 1980 was my first mid-year conference at Rathane. Ah, okay, down in uh, the Rathane, Royal National yeah. Park, yeah. Chaldercott, Deer yeah, Park, yeah. Rathane, Telford. Those were the days, weren't yeah. they? Does this remind you a bit of that at all? Well, no. <laughs> there were no little kids. <laughs> no little kids amongst we us. We were all young yeah, yeah. adults. Yeah, that's right. And you two got hitched. And, um, In 1985. 1985. Yeah. And I was chatting with Steve last night and we were talking about um, uh, movements in uh, Australian evangelicalism and Steve said, yeah, you know, I think that we're talking about a particular aspect of evangelicalism. And Steve said, you know, I think it's changed just over the last 10 years. And I said to Steve, mate, I would have thought the last 20 years, actually. At which point I said, but I wasn't here for the first 10 of those. I was out of the country. Yeah, so you've got this whole kind of uh, uh, black spot or a, a hole you know, missing in your understanding of Australian life. That's right. Life there are all sorts of books that I didn't read when everyone else was reading them, and a lot of them I've decided I'm not going to read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, how come you got this kind of... The, the hole? The hole of 10 the, years. Yes. Or? Well, in 1989 we uh, went to Uruguay. Uh, we were missionaries with the, the Church Missionary Society, and we were seconded to the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students to work with a fledgling student movement in the university uh, in Uruguay, which at that point was essentially uh, in the university in the capital city, Montevideo. Well, now let's just kind of <clears throat> backtrack there. Uruguay. Where's Uruguay, Veronica? It's uh, on the Atlantic coast of South America, south of Brazil and sort of east of... Argentina. So it's tucked in sort of three quarters the size of Victoria with a population of about three million. So why did you go to Uruguay for <coughs> ten years? And Because Montevideo? I was born there. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I spoke Spanish. <coughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I wasn't born there and I didn't speak Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> so when I uh, arrived all I could say was si, no, gracias. And the third was very dangerous because usually I didn't know what I was saying thank you for. <laughs> but you went there in order to help people to understand the thankfulness that they could have, which is because of? Because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the things which uh, was very significant for Veronica was that she was actually converted during her time in university. And then one of her first thoughts was, even though I went along to the Catholic Church in Uruguay there, I never, ever heard this. How will my friends ever hear this? They won't hear unless someone goes. <laughs> um, yes, and you guessed it. She went, and I went too. Yeah, that's, that's terrific. Now, um, <clears throat> what are you doing these days? Uh, so these days I'm <coughs> involved at North Sydney Greenwich Presbyterian Church. And it's uh, one parish with two centres, and I mostly do the Greenwich side 
although we swap over on the fourth Sunday of the month. Is um, it Greenwich, that's lower North Shore, that's because you like sipping lattes and... Uh, well, really, it's because we're so wealthy and we... <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it, um, it, it was uh, one of the churches that uh, needed a minister uh, and that's where they put me. Uh, my first response was, uh, but people will say, well, you're just going to the lower North Shore. Uh, and that's easy. And the person said to me, um, Stephen, you'll find there are sinners in Greenwich Presbyterian Church just like in the others, so don't worry that you're taking the easy course. Yeah, it hasn't been an easy course, though, has it? No. No. Uh, it, and it's, I know that there's real challenges there and um, challenges which uh, are difficult to understand uh, until you're actually in that... Uh, situation reaching people in Greenwich I was for the gospel saying to the halls just uh, earlier on that over this is now the fifth year that we've been doing what we call a community engagement thing once a month and uh, so the family that we met uh, early on in our time in Greenwich uh, and he would consider himself uh, a Richard Dawkins uh, card-carrying atheist um, last year they came to our Christmas service um, so you know, we've only been there seven years uh, yeah. in Greenwich. It's starting. Yes. <laughs> Slow, small steps. Yeah. Great. Uh, we could talk all day, but uh, eventually we want to be hearing from you on forgiveness. So um, thanks for um, coming up the front. Um, now, um, the book of Exodus. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles at Exodus chapter 32, and then she'll be reading from verse 21... To verse 35 and then she's going to read from verse 30 chapter 34 verses 1 to 14 everyone got that he said to Aaron what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin do not be angry my lord Aaron answered you know how prone these how prone these people are to evil they said to me make us gods who will go before us as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewellery, take it off. And then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me and all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, killing his brother and friend and neighbour. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you've written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go and lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. 
However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on... I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come out up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children, of the sins, for the sins of their father to the fourth, third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. O Lord, if I have found favour in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is that work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. I've really try and rush through quite a bit this morning, so uh, try and stay with me. The good news is that this morning's two talks uh, are a bit heavier, a bit more detail to get through. Uh, tomorrow there's a bit less detail to get through. If you've got a question on the way, then what you should do is just note that right then and there, okay, so that you don't forget what the question is uh, and there'll be an opportunity to ask that question. Well, as Christians, we ought to know about forgiveness, right? Well, some of you may know the uh, very prominent author and Christian speaker, Don Carson. He writes this in one of his books. A few years ago, a Christian brother took me aside and told me that he wanted a private word with me as I had offended him. I was unaware of what I had done to cause him such distress. Eager to put things right, I asked him to elucidate. His first reason for being offended, he said, lay in something that had happened 21 years earlier. We had been talking about something or other in the theological world and he had quoted a few words from an author who had written in French. Without thinking, I had repeated the few French words after him because I'd been brought up speaking French and so I was unconsciously correcting his pronunciation. (laughs) At the time he said nothing but he had taken deep umbrage. Now you know that that's Carson, he didn't write offence. 
Do you, I want you to know, Don, he said, I have not spoken another word of French since that day. 21 years. I think we can sense the struggle. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that without forgiveness, no human community can survive. Now, in 1988, I gave a series of talks, Parables on Forgiveness, from Matthew and Luke. Over the uh, series of talks, a number of questions were asked, and the last question was asked uh, was one that I couldn't answer. I remember it as though it was just 25 years ago. Does God forgive? Now, I want to answer that question firstly, no. It's very important for us how we start and where we start as we look at forgiveness. And the first thing that I want to say is that all sin must be punished. Now, there are other statements that I could make that are equally true. God punishes all sin or God punishes all sin by death. But immediately you would say, hang on, hang on, I can give you examples where it's not the case. So now I want to leave those other two statements as true, but by starting here, all sin must be punished, I think it'll be easier for us to see. It's essential that we begin with this fact, all sin must be punished. If we don't get it right, then we won't get forgiveness right. We'll be confused about what forgiveness is and we'll be confused about what forgiveness is not. So the world begins with God creating the world brilliantly, breathtakingly, as outlined in Genesis. And if you're doing scripture and the same cycle of lessons that I'm doing, you will be starting exactly with that. But within a couple of pages, and depending on how fine your print is, you might not even have to turn the page before you get to chapter 3, and it's punishment that comes to the fore. It explodes into the foreground. Condemnation, not cohabitation. Frustration, not fellowship. So what did Adam and Eve do? Well, I think that the easiest thing for us to do when we talk about sin is to talk about a transaction. We broke the law. But that really misses it. What happened with Adam and Eve was firstly that they distrusted God's good intention towards them. The whole picture we get in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is of extraordinary abundance. All for them. They distrusted God's good intention. They desire to supplant God. Now you'll see as we read from Genesis chapter 3. They doubt his promise of punishment. They disobey his direct, and in this case, restrictive command. Do not eat of the fruit of this tree. There's only one tree they can't eat from. So they are devastatingly and definitively punished. Pain in childbirth, thorns and thistles, sweat and hardship. They are thrown out of the garden. They are unable to eat from the tree of life and they are sent away from fellowship with God. 
So let me read to you Genesis chapter 3 from verse 1 to see if you can see those things that I've said here and listed here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say... You must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and she also gave to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. So you see that? We're not talking about disobeying one rule. Right? Satan comes in and says to Adam and Eve, God has not got your best at heart. He is withholding from you the most important thing. Now, when Jesus comes and preaches the gospel, the good news is repent and believe. You ever wonder why that was the case? You know what happens in sin? Disbelieve and turn away. That's where we start. So there's sin. What should God do with sin? Well, we know what God has done with sin. All right, uh, I outline that for you. But why? Well, when we come to uh, understand who God is, uh, how God has revealed himself to us, it's important for us to actually keep those things in mind. And as we talk about forgiveness, the three things which I want to, us to keep in mind are that God is loving, holy and righteous. God is loving, holy and righteous. He will always be loving, holy and righteous. He will not always be forgiving. These three things that God is loving, holy and righteous are, I think, the core of aspects of his nature that we need to keep in mind as we look at forgiveness. And I've just given you a, a few passages there that give evidence to that fact. In 1 John chapter 4, verse uh, 8, we read from verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God does not know God, because God is love. Now, it doesn't leave it there. It goes on to say, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So God is loving. God is holy. Now, holy is a, a word that we don't often really get the sense of. Um, set apart. Well, that's what I was brought up to not understand. Um, <coughs> let me say that the big category has got to do with the godness of God. It's something essential about being God. One of those things is that God is morally pure. Now, holiness is more than that, but it's certainly not less than that. 
But here in understanding forgiveness, that God is morally pure, that God is holy, uh, is essential. Isaiah chapter 6, you'll see there. The um, angels in the temple uh, calling holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah gets the vision and goes... No, he doesn't go. He flat on the floor, prostrate, desperate. He knows this is the end. God is holy. I am not. I live in the midst of a people who are not holy. The only thing that can happen is the end of me. In John's uh, <coughs> recording of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, John addresses, uh, Jesus addresses God both as Holy Father uh, and as Righteous Father. Interestingly, the only other time we get a sentence, God is, and then something after it, God is love, twice in 1 John 4. The only other time we get a sentence like that in the Bible is 1 John 1 5. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And you'll remember that John goes on then to say, if we claim to have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. God is holy. Now, if God is holy, then he can't look on sin. But the third thing, God is righteous. And by this we mean that God does what a relationship requires. In other words, he gives every creature their due. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching in Athens and he says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he, has, he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. Our NIV has. The word is righteousness. He has set a day when he will judge the world with righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now the other passage that's listed there from Romans chapter 3 is what pulls all this together. Why the, holy, uh, why the loving, holy God must deal with sin. Having presented the fact that all the world stands under God's condemnation because all the world sins, then Paul addresses the obvious and big problem uh, that we have. If this holy loving and righteous God is really holy, loving and righteous, why are people still alive? Why are there still human beings on earth? How can he possibly be righteous and give everyone their due if he hasn't given everyone their due? And so here in Romans chapter 3, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, NIV again has justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So you could accuse God of being unrighteous, of not giving people their due, so something had to happen. Jesus was presented as the sacrifice of atonement. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be righteous and the one who makes righteous those who have faith in Jesus. 
So we've got the problem of sin right there from the beginning of creation and we've got a, a loving, holy and righteous God. The loving, holy and righteous God must respond to sin by punishing sin. Now, you can see that we've kind of got a problem that we've alluded to. But it's also important for us to note that that punishment which starts in Genesis chapter 3, continues right throughout the whole of the rest of the Old Testament. It really is very, very prominent. Cain is punished for his sin of killing his brother, and he says that his punishment is greater than he can bear. Noah is saved along with his family and a whole bunch of animals, but the rest of humanity, dead as punishment by God, for the fact that the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil all the time. The lens then focuses down in the biblical story to the people who God calls as his own people. But we still get exactly the same picture. There is a heck of a lot of punishment going on for God's own people. They come out of Egypt incredibly fantastically rescued and the whole generation that came out and was counted in the census is dead, bar two. Why? As punishment for sin. And we could go on right through. We get to the end of the Old Testament and although the whole ten northern tribes have gone into exile and stayed there and never come back, as punishment for their sin, all right? And though the southern two tribes have been to exile and come back, what's the characteristic? Once they come back, sin and punishment occurs as well. And so we get to the end of the Old Testament and we've got this unresolved problem. But we keep on seeing that punishment is not some kind of automatic cause and effect. You sin and somehow impersonally the universe gives you back punishment. Alright? What we get from the whole of the Old Testament is that that is not the case. God actively punishes his people. That's what's happening. We go on and uh, we get into the New Testament and we'll see exactly that same pattern going on. God punishes the rest of the world. Jeremiah, Amos, for example, give us clear evidence that God's judgment, uh, God's punishment of sin doesn't just apply to his people, it applies to everyone and they have uh, curses against the nations around about them. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And again, having got across into the New Testament, we're still given that same picture that it is God who is punishing. He is the one who initiates punishment. He might use agents, so it might be that one kingdom comes and raises another kingdom, but God is the one who is, as it were, the prime mover. In Acts that passage that I read, we find out that God not only has punished, but that God will punish, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. 
We see in the book of Revelation that that punishment will actually go on forever. And we see in 2 Peter and in Jude that God even holds the angels over for punishment. So we began by saying all sin must be punished. That will lead us to the point where we will have to say God must punish all sin. And in that very brief kind of panoramic glimpse at Old and New Testament, we see that it is God who does the punishing. Now, that's great news. It's great news that the loving, holy and righteous God punishes. We need a God who punishes all sin. I recently read a biography of Mao Zedong. During his time, 50 million people in China died because of his actions. Multinational companies impoverish and maltreat their workers. Uh, on Thursday night, our um, community engagement, we had a speaker who was talking to us about West Papua. West Papua has a population of uh, 1.5 million West Papuans. 500,000 West Papuans have died uh, over the time since Indonesia uh, took over from the Dutch. West Papua has the biggest gold mine in the world and the third biggest copper mine in the world. We need a God who will punish all sin. Best friends steal from one another. Husbands cheat on their wives. Parents abuse their children. We could go on. We need a God who does not say, don't worry, it's okay. Just forget it. But can we survive a God who punishes all sin? Think of what it means for you and for me. If God must punish all sin, if God does punish all sin... And if there are statements like these in Scripture, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 17, if a person sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's <coughs> commands, even though he does not know it, he is guilty and will be held responsible. Or in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, but I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. So it's great that we have a God who must punish all sin, but it's also a huge problem for us. Now, I just want you to um, stand up, have a little wiggle. <laughs> and sit back down. Okay. So, all sin must be punished. But, that's obviously not all that the Bible says. But we couldn't start there, because if we started where we are now, we would miss that first and very important point. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament undeniably affirm that God forgives sin. As a matter of fact, that's the good news in Scripture, that God forgives sin. 
And I want to say that forgiveness is in God's character and that it's in his commitment. Now, I could say it's in his plan, but I'd lose the alliteration. Okay, so it's in God's character to forgive sins. There are lots of passages that we could look at, but we're going to look at two sets of passages, one in the Old Testament and another set of passages in the New Testament. The first set of passages comes uh, from what Elisa read to us earlier on, Exodus chapter 34. And what we've got is this situation. It's a great line, isn't it, when Aaron says, the people brought to me all their gold jewellery, I threw it into the fire and this calf popped out. Um, there are lots of really funny lines in the Bible. That is one of them. Uh, another favourite of mine is when um, Saul has been told by Samuel to go uh, and to uh, attack this group of people and to wipe them out and to wipe out everything they possess. Uh, and, and Samuel comes and says to Saul, Why have you disobeyed God? And, and Saul says, But we did everything that God said. And Samuel says, What then is this bleating of sheep that I hear? Dead sheep don't bleat. <laughs> there are lots of great lines. Okay, so the first one comes uh, in Exodus chapter 34. They'd hardly got going as a people. It, it was impossible for them to have forgotten what God did to bring them out of Egypt, just to get them on their way, let alone how they walked across the Dead Sea. But there they were. And so we have this amazing passage where God reveals himself to Moses and he does so proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Now, note that the passage doesn't stop there, it goes on. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. Now, those words get picked up again and again uh, in the rest of the Old Testament. And there is a list of the passages that allude back to Exodus chapter 34. God is revealing himself to Moses and that revelation is not just a private revelation to Moses, that is for the whole people of Israel. This is what your God is like. We get into the book of Numbers and in chapters 12, 13 and 14 there are a series of incidents where the people rebel against God. And at that point the spies are sent to check out the promised land. They come back with their report uh, and the people who've been told, <coughs> look at this huge bunch of grapes. It took two of us to carry it back. No, that wasn't the message that the people got. The message the people got was the land is full of giants. The cities are well fortified. They're actually um, fortress cities and the people are powerful and they say we won't go. We read in Numbers chapter 14, that night all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? 
and they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will this people distrust my good intentions towards them? Hear the pattern? How long will they refuse to believe in me, in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? Just like all the trees of the garden. There it is, all this incredible evidence of God's good intentions for them. I'll strike them down with a plague and destroy them. Now Moses, at that point, it's quite amazing really. Moses stands in the breach between God and the people. He says to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people, and that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the desert. Now what basis does Moses have for making that appeal? Well, it goes on. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared it. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. You see, God had revealed his character to Moses, and Moses in this situation says, God, I know what you are like. I know who you are. Now, I mean, it's impossible to get inside the psyche of Moses. Was there any kind of trepidation? Did Moses say, I know what God has said and I'm going to stand here and hold him to it, but it's God. Well, I mean, we, we don't get a psychological analysis like that. What we get is the description that Moses goes to God and says, this is who you are. This is how you've revealed yourself. Now, if we go through uh, the rest of those verses, we'll see, for example, uh, at the end uh, of the period of kings in Israel, uh, as they are moving inexorably towards the exile, in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, um, <coughs> the people of Israel are stiff-necked, uh, they are not doing what God has asked them, and so we hear again, if you return to the Lord, then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Or in Nehemiah, they have returned. All right? Uh, and Nehemiah chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9, it's, um, and Ezra chapter 9, there are three um, chapter 9s that you can remember. Uh, <clears throat> they're prayers 
and they are prayers which rehearse what God is like, what God has done, but what the people are like and what they've done and bring the two things together to give hope to the people, to ask for God to be forgiving. So in his prayer uh, in Nehemiah chapter 9, but they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked. They did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And then again in verse 31, it's repeated. Chapter, uh, Psalm 78, the same kind of rehearsal of Israel's history. Yet their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. Similarly, Psalm 103 uh, on two occasions, Joel chapter 2 and Jonah. Now here is the really interesting one. You remember, Jonah heads out, eventually forced by God to take the message to Nineveh. He preaches, the people repent, and we read this, chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, this is, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents for sending calamity. And I did not want the Ninevites to get that compassion and love and forgiveness. That's why I didn't want to go. So you see how widely it's known in Israel what God is like. They know it. And even in this perverse way, Jonah gives testimony to it. Okay, the second thing, the second line is in um, the New Testament, in the book of Luke and in Acts, forgiveness of sins is like a technical phrase that sums up God's plan and purpose as the gospel is announced. It doesn't occur very many times, but the way in which it occurs shows very clearly this is a summary. If you want to summarise it, then this is one way of doing it, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It starts in chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by, the rise, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. It comes with John's preaching. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It comes when Jesus stands in the synagogue at Capernaum and reads from the prophet Isaiah and says, This is about me. Now, that's a little harder because it says, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed. Both of those are the same word which is translated in the other parts, forgiveness. Why were they oppressed and in prison? 
not because Amnesty International says they're righteous people who are put in jail for their righteousness by perverse governments. No, they're perverse and corrupt people who God has put in jail for their perversion and corruption against him. That's why they need forgiveness. That's why Jesus says, what I've come to do is to release the prisoners and the oppressed to give them forgiveness. When Jesus opens the disciples' minds and takes them through the scriptures after his resurrection, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So, we could go through uh, the book of Acts and the verses that I've listed there for you, but uh, there's not time uh, for us to do that. I hope that with that really quick look at the revelation of God's character in Exodus chapter 34 and the way it's used in the Old Testament and this kind of hint that the good news is forgiveness of sins in Luke and Acts, we can see that forgiveness is in God's character and it's in his commitment. So we've got this strange thing that the punishment of all sin and the forgiveness of sin both arise out of the character of God. Does that mean that God is in conflict? Some days he's the punishing God, some days he's the forgiving God. No, obviously not. So what we get to as we look at the punishment and the forgiveness that comes from God's character. Firstly, God must punish all sin. Secondly, God forgives. It's in his character. It's in his commitment. If God is not in conflict within himself, if punishment and forgiveness are not in conflict with one another then what we'll have to say is that punishment and forgiveness are not mutually exclusive alternatives. You could actually do both if that was the case. And the fourth thing, punishment is necessary for forgiveness to occur. Now, that's where we're going in our next talk. Um, I'm going to go over time because I want to read to you the rest of Numbers chapter 14. After uh, that appeal that God makes, <clears throat> and we read those verses, now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared it. What was God's reply to Moses when he petitioned God? What do you think God did? Well, let me read on. Verse 20 from Numbers chapter 14. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Hear that? Very clear, very plain. I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who has seen my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. 
Now that's totally unexpected, isn't it? I have forgiven them as you have asked. They're all dead. Okay? Now, we're going to have to go on to explore that. But that third assertion, forgiveness and punishment are not mutually exclusive alternatives. I wanted you to know that that's not just a logical expression that Steve Pym made up, but that's actually what we find here in the scriptures and so it's something we're going to have to deal with as we go on. Thanks. Thanks.